It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 385 for March 23rd, 2014. This week, browsers are a lot like cars, okay as they are, but really not interesting until you add some accessories. Could I interest you in trying a new browser? What if I mention it's made in China? In short circuits, the Khan Academy is offering programs designed to help students do better on the Scholastic Aptitude Test for free. Apple is rumored to be building a watch, but Google is about to bring one to market. Facebook's Deep Face technology, which is still in development, is as accurate as a human being in identifying people. And after seven years of court fights, Google and Viacom decide to be friends. Until 1994, a browser was somebody who wandered more or less aimlessly through a retail store, normally saying, oh, no, I'm just just looking. Well, then came the World Wide Web and the concept of the browser as an application that runs on a computer. Today, many of us spend a lot of our time at work and at home interacting with a browser. It probably shouldn't be a surprise that the basic browser often fails to meet our needs, no matter which browser it is. And that's why plugins are so popular. What's a little surprising, though, is how few people actually install plugins. I'm going to use that term generically, because even though all of the major browsers support plug-in technology, they of course don't all use the same name to describe it. Plugins add functionality that is not present in the basic browser, thus making the browser suitable for tasks that it otherwise might not be suitable for. Not every plugin is a must for every user. Firebug and Web Developer, for example, are two I've installed in Firefox, but most people wouldn't need them. Some plugins would be valuable additions for just about anybody, though. And I'd like to tell you about some of the ones that I consider to be in that group. In most cases, the plugins are available at least for Firefox and Chrome. Many have Internet Explorer versions, too. But first, how to install an add-on. Firefox, Chrome, and Internet Explorer cannot use the same processes to provide access to add-ons, of course. So here's how to navigate to where you need to be for each browser. Now, in each case, the description is for the most recent version of the browser. Earlier versions might not work exactly as I describe here. For Firefox, you want Tools and then Add-ons, and you'll see a group of tabs. So select the Get Add-ons tab. In Chrome, click the Menu icon, choose Settings, and then click Extensions. Scroll to the bottom of the page and click Get More Extensions. For Internet Explorer, you need to select Tools and Manage Add-ons. Then click Find More Toolbars and Extensions. But note, if you're using another browser as your default, that other browser will open, so you'd need to tell IE to be the default for this to work. This is another reason that I just don't use IE. But let's get on to the plugins. I've described a password manager, LastPass, before, and I think it is the best possible way to maintain control over dozens or perhaps hundreds of passwords that we have to manage these days. There is a LastPass plugin for all major browsers, and if you use LastPass, 
you should certainly install the plugin. LastPass has recently acquired XMarks, the bookmark synchronizing program. If you use several browsers or you have more than one computer, you might have wished there's some way to keep a consistent set of bookmarks on all the browsers on all the computers. There is, and it's called XMarks. As you install XMarks for each of your browsers, you'll specify whether the bookmarks on the computer should be merged with what's on the XMarks server, replace the bookmarks on the server, or be replaced by the bookmarks on the server. And I think everybody should install HTTPS everywhere. It is not available, however, via the browser's standard installation process. Instead, you need to visit the Electronic Frontier Foundation's website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website and download it from there. Here's why you need it. Many sites offer limited support for encryption over HTTPS, but they sometimes make it difficult to get to and to use. Most sites will default to standard HTTP, which is a plain text process. The HTTPS Everywhere extension rewrites any requests to call for HTTPS, which is encrypted, instead. But this is not a protective application. It provides protection only when you attempt to connect using HTTP to a site that offers HTTPS. In other words, it activates security features if they're present, but it can't create them if they're not already there. Some people prefer Chrome's single URL and search bar. The user can type a URL or a search term, and Chrome figures out what the user wants. The person who types techbiter.com clearly wants a website, while typing where do tigers live would obviously be a question for a search engine. Unlike Chrome, Firefox and Internet Explorer both have separate URL and search areas. Omnibar combines them to provide Chrome-like functionality. Adblock Plus, NoScript, and Ghostery are a trio of plugins that eliminate annoying ads, protect against script-based attacks, and reveal the names of services that sites use. Adblock Plus has no inherent functionality. That is, it doesn't block anything until the user tells it what to block. I consider this to be important because I'm really not opposed to advertising. But when an ad plays audio or video without my permission, I block it. NoScript can sometimes be a little bit annoying, but it eliminates website features that are even more annoying and possibly dangerous. By default, NoScript will block all scripting. The user can then re-enable scripting for trusted sites, but scripting that's imported from other locations still must be approved individually. And that's where the annoying part comes in, because NoScript has a trust all this page option, but it doesn't really work as intended, and you may see the prompt several times on the same page, but eventually it gets the idea. NoScript does protect against cross-site scripting and click hijacking, so it's really worth the occasional annoyance. JavaScript, Java, Flash, and other plugin code will be executed only by websites that you explicitly trust. I wouldn't run a computer without NoScript. Ghostery reveals cookies, tags, web bugs, pixels, and beacons that sites even TechBiter might use. And you can choose which to allow. After you've seen what's being used, you can decide whether or not you want to block any of the services in Ghostery's library. You may want to allow some specific functions or some entire sites. I rarely turn off any of these, but I do find it interesting to see who's using what. 
If you do a lot of online shopping, you might find Price Blink to be useful. When you're viewing a specific product, Price Blink searches more than 3,000 merchants for lower prices and lets you know whether you've found the best price. It also provides coupon codes from hundreds of commercial websites. So if you're looking at a specific item, Price Blink researches prices on other sites and displays them to you. Be cautious when comparing prices, though, because fraudsters are getting a lot better at getting search engines to index their pages. Look for the best price, but stick with websites that you know and trust. When you land on most commercial websites, Price Blink will offer coupons related to that site. And when you're not on a commercial site, the big yellow Price Blink banner simply vanishes. If you're a Firefox user, you probably have a long list of installed add-ons by now. The add-on part of the browser's control panel might look a little overcrowded. And take a look at the screen and you probably are thinking, gee, they could probably make better use of the real estate than what they're doing here. You can fix the add-on clutter by adding another add-on. It's called the Cleanest Add-on Manager. So, an add-on to control other add-ons. It condenses your add-on list and cleans up a lot of wasted space in Firefox and also in Thunderbird, but it retains all of the basic application's functionality. And last on my list, but I still think this is an important one, World IP. This is a plug-in that provides information about where a website is physically located and what its IP address is. Why might you need this? Well, it provides protection against DNS spoofing and fake sites by providing access to all the DNS records for the domain. So you'll see the real location of the web server, country flag, and some extended information about the data center. If you're visiting what claims to be the American Express website or your bank's website, but you see it's located in Albania, you might want to reconsider providing any information until you get to the right site. Those are just a few of the plugins that are available for Firefox, Chrome, and Internet Explorer. Some plugins are available for even lesser-known browsers. Check them out and see how you can make whichever browser or browsers you prefer even better. Speaking of browsers, and we were just speaking of browsers, how about trying one from China? If your initial response is along the lines of, no way, give me a moment here. First, understand that this is not a brand new browser. It's been around for more than eight years, and in some form, it's actually been around for more than 15 years. There's a story behind the Chinese part, too. Maxthon is based on MyIE, which was created by a Chinese programmer as a way to customize Internet Explorer a long time ago. The programmer released the source code before leaving the project in 2000. Maxthon CEO Ming Chen continued to work on the code and released version 2 in 2002. Users have contributed code to the project to create plugins and other features, MyIE2 became Maxlon in 2003. The browser runs on Windows, Apple's OS X, Windows Phone 8, iOS devices, and Android devices. And it supports both the Trident and WebKit rendering engines. That makes it pretty unusual. Still have doubts? 
Well, Maxon has won several awards from organizations as divergent as CNET and PC World over the years. And although most of the development is done in Beijing, the company has corporate offices in San Francisco, along with Hong Kong and Shanghai. Four years ago, Microsoft even began including Maxon as one of the 12 browsers it displays at browserchoice.eu. That's the site that Windows users who live in Europe visit to select and install the browser they would like to be their default. You may recall that the EU forced Microsoft to stop installing Internet Explorer as the default. Versions for Android, Mac, and iOS devices date back to 2010. The current Windows version, which is 4, has been around since late 2012. Earlier I talked about plugins, and if you are big on plugins, Firefox is still the leader, unquestioned. For speed and built-in functionality, Chrome wins. Even Microsoft's Internet Explorer long ago shed its loser status. Many people haven't realized that yet and IE still gets little respect, even though in some ways it is the most secure browser today. And I should mention Opera, now at version 20. It does get some respect, but not much notice. So let's look at Maxthon. You might be a bit concerned during installation if you bother to read the agreement. Near the top it says, When you install Maxthon, you will be given the opportunity to install additional software products from third-party providers. A list of the available third-party software products will be provided during the installation. Use of each available third-party software product is governed by its own end-user license agreement. Those license agreements will be presented for your review and acceptance during the installation of each third-party software product. Uh Uh-oh, I thought. In fact, I thought this might refer to tag-along installations that plague other freeware applications, but that was not the case. No additional applications were presented, no additional applications were installed, so what it seems to refer to instead are plugins that are available. The choice is nowhere near as broad or as deep as the plugins available for Firefox, but several hundred do exist. They have, of course, been written by third parties, hence the warning. When you install Maxon, you'll of course want to turn off the Set as Default Browser option, at least until you decide whether you might really want this browser to be your default. You'll be given another opportunity to make Maxon your default browser when you first open the browser. Just decline that offer too and go on with seeing what you think. Maxon is a fast browser and it has excellent support for HTML5 and CSS3. And although the tabbed browsing isn't quite as robust as you'll find in the big three browsers, the presence of both main rendering engines, Trident and WebKit, is a big plus. And for privacy, Do Not Track is enabled by default. If you install Maxthon, the first thing you're going to notice is that it doesn't look like other browsers. In fact, if you have Windows 8, the Maxthon interface is probably a better fit than any of the big three. All of the clutter you'd typically find at the top of the browser is gone, except for the minimize, resize, and close buttons in the upper right. Along the left edge of the browser, you'll see several icons that allow you to log on to the Maxthon Synchronizer site. That's optional. If you want to share information between computers and handheld devices, you can display your favorites, manage downloads, define RSS feeds you subscribe to, connect to the Maxthon community, and write notes that will optionally be synchronized to your Maxthon SkyCloud. Where's the menu, you're probably wondering? Well, perhaps taking a cue from Chrome, it's on the right side of the screen below an icon that looks like a menu. Chrome combines its URL and search box into a single unit. 
Internet Explorer and Firefox have separate areas, but I've explained how a plugin can convert Firefox to work the way Chrome does. Maxon provides a huge URL box and a tiny search box, but click inside the search box and it suddenly becomes bigger. In the upper left corner, initially you'll see a smiley face. That is the icon that you click to log on to Maxthon's cloud-based services. As I said, these are optional, but if you create an account and upload a photo, you'll see that photo in place of the smiley face. Creating an account has several advantages. If you have multiple computers that you'd like to synchronize, this is what makes it possible. Bookmarks and favorites can also be synchronized with Android and iOS devices. If you're a user of OneNote, Evernote, or Google Keep, the SkyNote feature will have less appeal, but the built-in Notes feature could be used by anybody who wants to write a reminder that would then be synchronized with all their other computers. When you sign up for an account, Maxthon will send you an email. That's pretty normal. Whenever you sign up for any account anywhere, you typically get an email. But this email includes both your username and password. That happens with some other organizations, too, and it is an absolute security violation. The instant you receive the message, you should log on and change your password. If you do that, the security issue will be eliminated, but it really shouldn't be introduced in the first place. But Maxthon is certainly not alone in doing this. What impresses me most about Maxthon is this. The developers have clearly been thinking outside the browser. Maxthon offers some features that are not present in any other browser. These have names such as Cloud Download, Push, Resource Sniffer, Magic Fill, Feed Reader, and Night Mode. When you download a file from a website, the file is typically placed on your computer. If you want to use the file elsewhere, you have to transport it there or download it again from the other device. Maxthon's Cloud Download can place the file in your online storage instead, so it's available from any computer where you've installed the browser. Push is what you would use when you want to send a page reference to another computer. Click the star icon in the address bar, that's what you'd typically use to create a new favorite, and you can simply create a favorite or bookmark, as you would with any other browser, or select Push to, and then send the address to your other device. Resource Sniffer works on any page that contains media files, photos, music, video, anything like that. Just click the resource sniffer and you'll be offered the opportunity to download any of the files, or all of them. If the site you're visiting has some sort of protective measures installed, the process may not work properly, but it does seem to function as intended with all the sites I tried, such as YouTube and Vimeo. MagicFill is essentially a password manager. I generally don't care for browser-based password managers because they're often less secure than a dedicated password manager such as LastPass. But MagicFill actually works a lot like LastPass. You can also use it to fill in forms on websites based on multiple identities that you define. Multiple identities? Yeah, like you with your home address or you with your office address, things like that. FeedReader is for those who have a lot of RSS feeds defined. You'll appreciate it because it provides a very good way to display all of those feeds in a single concise window. And here's one that's kind of imaginative. Night Mode. If you have a notebook or a tablet computer that you read in bed, you are a candidate for Night Mode. It darkens the site and you get to choose the colors so that the page is easier to read in a dark room. There's also a status bar in the lower right corner, and there you can select various options to display. The CPU usage, upload and download speed, the available or virtual memory, and your local or public IP address. 
And if you happen to be connected to the internet via a proxy, you can find out about it by clicking the proxy icon that's up at the top. I said the tabs maybe aren't quite as robust as in the other browsers. That's because although you can move tabs left or right by grabbing them with the mouse cursor, Maxthon does not make it possible to just grab a tab and drag it off the browser to open a new instance of the browser. That's a feature that I find incredibly handy for some tasks, particularly when I'm working where I have more than one monitor. But maybe the new tab feature makes up for some of that. If you click the plus sign at the right of all your open tabs to create a new tab, you'll encounter what I think is the best new page function available. Well, Opera's is probably better, but so few people use Opera that most people have never seen this new tab functionality working the way it should. You'll see a tiled grid of pages. Initially, it's mainly search engines, news sites, and portals. Hover your mouse over it and use the scroll wheel, or if you have a touch screen, just swipe, and you'll see many more tiles. Now, for the six people on the planet who won't like this feature, Maxthon does make it possible to just hide all the tiles and instead simply display a blank page. I haven't seen Maxthon on an iOS device, but it works well on a Windows tablet and an Android tablet, so I would expect it to work well on an iOS device or an Android phone. One of the images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is Maxthon on a Nexus 7 tablet. Since the first part of this program was all about extensions, you might wonder about those, too. So, at last count, Firefox had something like 12 quintuple bazillion plugins, extensions, themes, and backgrounds. Perhaps that's a slight overstatement. No other browser comes even close. But Maxthon does have a few hundred plugins. You'll find a gear icon in the lower left corner of the browser. This will lead you to the Extensions Manager, where you can review what's available. One thing you'll notice, though, is that many of the icons are intended for Chinese users. By now, that should not be much of a surprise to you. If you don't read Chinese, you'll probably want to check the English-only box. In fact, if you install it in the U.S., that box will be checked by default. If you're looking for a browser that is really compatible with HTML5 and CSS3 standards, look no further than Maxthon. Really. The HTML5test.com website measures browser compatibility, and all of the current browsers provide good support for the latest standards, but Maxthon edges out even Chrome. The testing service's best possible score is 555, Maxthon scored 513, that's 92%. Compare this with Chrome at 505, 91%. Opera at 496, 89%. Firefox at 448, 81%. Or Internet Explorer, you get two numbers here. If you're using version 10, it's at 335, that's 60%. But if you're running Windows 8.1 and you have version 11, it's all the way up at 376, a whopping 68%, compared to Maxthon's 92%. Possibly one reason for this score is the fact that Maxthon includes both the page rendering engine that Internet Explorer uses, Trident, and the one that Chrome uses, WebKit. Security? Well, the most secure browser today actually is Internet Explorer 11, because it has built-in protections against rogue downloads. Maxon does use a sandbox technique, though, similar to that employed by Chrome, and it protects system operations from what the browser is doing. So the bottom line for the Chinese browser Maxon 
five cats. Thinking far outside the browser leads to a really innovative browser. Given how long Maxthon has been around, I can't exactly call it new, but Maxthon's developers have displayed a willingness to think about browsers in new ways, and version 4.2 shows it. The differences are clear, but they don't get in the way of using the browser, and after just a few minutes, you might start thinking of Maxthon as an old friend. More information is available on the Maxthon website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, the Scholastic Aptitude Test is one of two tests used by some colleges in determining which students to admit, and the SAT will be changing its format in 2016. A huge and profitable industry tutors students to learn how to take the tests. The redesigned SAT is supposed to focus more on skills needed to succeed in college and less on just learning how to take tests. In the meantime, though, learning successful test-taking strategies is important. Khan Academy, the free online educational resource that's in part funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is striving to level the playing field between students of wealthy parents who can afford that test tutoring and students whose parents can't afford the expensive programs. Khan is partnering with the College Board so that all students who want to go to college can prepare for the SAT at their own pace and without cost. If somebody you know will be taking the SAT this year or next, they can start practicing right now, today, with hundreds of previously unreleased math, reading, and writing questions from real SATs on the Khan website. In addition, more than 200 videos that show the step-by-step solutions to questions are present. By spring of next year, Khan plans to offer interactive learning tools that will provide deep practice and help students to identify areas where their knowledge is lacking. Our goal, says Khan's official policy, is nothing short of leveling the playing field for every student taking the SAT. For more information, take a look at Khan's SAT preparation site. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's khanacademy.org forward slash SAT. watch? How many people do you know who wear a watch? Most people I know just use their cell phone or some other handheld device to find out what time it is, and often to manage their calendar, their task list, and reminders, too. Could watches ever become so powerful that they'd make a comeback? Apple seems to think so. Google does, too. The latest Android watch could either be incredibly useful or astonishingly intrusive, depending on your feelings about privacy. This week, Google announced what it calls Android Wear, a modified version of the operating system designed for wearable computers. The Android Watch will, of course, know where you are, and so it'll be able to provide helpful information about what's in the area. But the Android Watch will also report your location so that others will be able to send ads enticing you to visit their stores. 
Your new Android watch could display posts and updates from your friends, news, and like other Android tablets and phones, it would respond to questions you ask by speaking into it. Where's Dick Tracy when we need him? The Android watch will have the ability to help you monitor health and fitness. Apps will be able to tell you how far you've walked, remind you not to skip the gym, and report activity summaries to you. All of this information would be helpful, but it raises questions about how some highly personal information might accidentally escape from the device on your wrist. If you own other Android devices, the watch will allow you to control them. In a blog post, Google says, there's a lot of possibilities here, so we're eager to see what the developers build. So now you have two devices to wait for, one from Apple and one from Google. And it appears that Google will win the race to the marketing finish line. Here's why that's important. Android is the most popular operating system for smartphones. Apple isn't even close, despite the iPhone. But some developers still create apps for Apple's iOS before porting it to Android. If Google is able to bring a watch to market before Apple does, that could shake up the development community. And maybe if... Apple creates a watch, not when. There's been a lot of talk about it, but Apple, as always, is a very secretive company. So, watch this space, so to speak. Decision, a novel by Daniel Suarez, examines the future of warfare where drone aircraft can identify individuals and kill them entirely without human intervention. I'm reading the novel this week, and this week's Extreme Tech had a report about a Facebook technology called Deep Face. That's really what they called it, Deep Face. Deep Face is as good as humans when it comes to identifying people's faces. Combined, those two accounts seemed a little unnerving. Humans are still better, but not by much. The article says that DeepFace can examine two photographs, even if the lighting and camera angles differ, and can determine with 97.25% accuracy whether the photographs are images of the same person. Humans get it right 97.53% of the time. That is just 28 hundredths of 1% better. It hasn't been rolled out yet. The article says that DeepFace is currently just a research project. I quote, Facebook will use it to help tag your photos, but it would also be irresponsible if we didn't mention the true power of facial recognition, which Facebook is surely investigating. Tracking your face across the entirety of the web and in real life as you move from shop to shop, producing some very lucrative behavioral tracking data indeed. End quote. So the article points out some very real concerns. For example, DeepFace could be clearly used to trawl through every photo on the internet, the article says, and link it back to your Facebook profile, assuming your profile contains a photo of your face anyway. It, would that be an invasion of privacy? Assuming you posted your images on the public internet, probably not. But what if somebody else posted the images? Facebook already recognizes people that you've tagged previously, and it does a darn good job of it if the person in the photograph is reasonably well-lighted, the photo has sufficient detail, and the image is close to being straight on. The new technology would extend this ability to far more images. 
And you can read the full article on the Extreme Tech website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. a little long this week, but I wanted to share with you a news release that was about as illuminating as a two-watt light bulb at the bottom of Mammoth Cave. Google, the owner of YouTube and media company Viacom, have reached an agreement to stop meeting in courtrooms. Here's what they said jointly, and I quote, Google and Viacom today jointly announced the resolution of the Viacom versus YouTube copyright litigation. The settlement reflects a growing collaborative dialogue between our two companies on important opportunities, and we look forward to working more closely together. End quote. The only thing missing from the news release is news. Except for that, it's a great news release. The two have been battling in court since 2007 when Viacom sued YouTube, accusing the video-sharing site of allowing people to upload movies and television programs for which Viacom held copyright. Viacom never conclusively proved that Google had any knowledge of specific copyright violations, and as a result, Google has generally prevailed in court. One judge, finding in Google's favor, said that the burden of proving that YouTube knowingly allowed specific infringements of the works is with Viacom. In other words, YouTube must be considered innocent until proved guilty, not the other way around. The burden, said the judge, cannot be shifted to YouTube to disprove. Even the barbaric Digital Millennium Copyright Act includes what's called the safe harbor provision that holds providers, such as YouTube, blameless as long as they take down any copyrighted materials when the copyright holder notifies them to do so. And amusingly, 100 of the videos cited by Viacom in one of its suits were found to have been uploaded by Viacom employees. In recent years, the companies have become friendlier. Viacom even posts clips and some longer materials to YouTube. So, the decision to drop the legal wrangling is simply an agreement to recognize the status that has been quo for quite some time. And my apologies to Latin teachers worldwide. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.